Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are broken and ways to fix them. This week, we're going to have a special episode to discuss the impeachment process in the United States Senate. We're going to be exploring what happened, what worked, and what didn't work. And we're going to ask the big question, how could it have been better? I'm James Wallner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a professorial lecturer at the School of Public Affairs at American University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor at Marquette University and a blogger at the mistressoffaction.com. So, Julia, give us a quick recap. All right. So our big question today is, did the impeachment process work? But we, I did want to go back to a couple questions that we had posed when we first talked about impeachment on this show back in October, um, not long after Nancy Pelosi made her big announcement about the beginning of an impeachment inquiry. So we had, we had three predictions that came either collectively from the group or one, one of us. And I just want to briefly reflect on whether those were accurate and what that means. So first, we predicted that Pelosi would draw the process out through the election year. We also had predicted that the Senate would potentially dismiss any charges that came from the House. Um, and finally, as, as Lee predicted in a piece at 538, um, we had this idea that the Republicans might turn on Trump all at once or not at all. So let's revisit each of these ideas, starting with the Pelosi will draw out the process. I think we can agree that that didn't happen. All right. A little bit of, a little bit of pundit accountability here. I yeah, love it. A little, right. a lot of, a lot of honesty here. Yeah. People. Yeah. We're holding ourselves accountable. Unlike some people. No, I think that that's, that's right. Uh, Pelosi, uh, my recollection of what we said the last time was that Pelosi in announcing an impeachment inquiry was basically trying to do the bare minimum to satisfy uh, a concern amongst uh, some of her members in her caucus and in the Democratic Party more broadly to make it look like they were having an impeachment process without actually going through with the impeachment process. However, after the whistleblower uh, came out and, and released um, his or her allegations, uh, we're not going to be re releasing the whistleblower's name on this podcast, but it looked like things took off and it looked like Pelosi lost control of that process. And it went very quickly after that. We're to the point where it was wrapped up before Christmas. So yes, I think on that front, we were wrong. But I will say in, in, you know, in, in our defense, I'm still not convinced that Pelosi wanted it to go very quickly. My guess is that a lot of House Democrats would have preferred it to go rather slowly and deliberately and not have it kind of be completed so fast so that they could have let it go throughout the year and potentially even have an election before this thing was resolved. Yeah, so I'll defend my prediction, which was that the, if, if Republicans were going to turn on Trump, they would turn on him all at once or not at all. Now, uh, the asterisk there is, of course, uh, Mitt Romney, who voted on one of the articles impeachment. Uh, but I mean, Republicans f held together with remarkable unity throughout this whole process, despite a lot of moments where they they could have broken and a lot of pressure on some of those marginal senators to 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 break with the pack. So I I, I think one of the things that this whole impeachment process revealed was how much partisan unity there is in the face of this process, uh, which was, you know, really, I think, really tested the partisan unity of the Republican Party. Yeah, I would agree with that. 
And I was thinking about this last night as I was reflecting on that prediction in October about how the Republicans would work. And just to just to self-promote, I also have a piece up at Mistress of Faction um, called It Was a Bad Week for Unwritten Rules, in which I reflect on on Romney's defection from the Republican Senate caucus as a norm violation, both in the sense that it, it violates the, the brief but important precedent that no senator had ever voted to remove a member of his or her own party before, and also that arguing that party loyalty is a really important norm among Republicans. And so I think that in some ways, yeah, Romney's decision is like the exception that that proves the rule. And there's a very specific set of conditions under which that was that happened. You know, Romney's political identity, his past reservations about Trump and his electoral security in Utah. So I think those are the, you know, that's that's what happened. And so I would actually say that that your prediction there, Lee, was, you know, was was correct and that we did see immense partisan unity. So turning to our, our third prediction, that the Senate would dismiss the charges, which, you know, when I, I went back and listened to what we said in October, and at least you and I, Lee, were were, were quite confident that this was a was a strong possibility. And I, I remember I for additional accountability that I had said this to my students in my political parties class last fall as well, that I thought there was a high probability, given Mitch McConnell's track record of choosing partisan loyalty over the sort of norms around bipartisanship or informal practices in that regard, that there was a high probability he would do this. So the Senate didn't dismiss the charges. But they did decide not to call additional witnesses in a high pressure context in which, you know, among other things, former National Security Advisor John Bolton came forward with information about uh, having had a conversation about Trump, about freezing aid to Ukraine that contributed to this the overall sense that there was that both that there was this exchange. I'm not going to say the Latin phrase because I'm just going to mess it up. And um, also that the president was directly involved. Two things that were initially the the kind of key questions in the proceedings. So my answer to my own question about, you know, will the Senate dismiss this or take this seriously is that really one of the things that comes out of this is is that the Senate, it's not just the Senate acquitted, but that the Senate really elected not to take this very seriously. I think that's right. Though it's helpful to reflect on Mitch McConnell and the way in which um, the media is reporting on his role as as a way into this question. So after the impeachment trial was over in the Senate, especially last week, there are a number of articles that came out talking about how Mitch McConnell is a genius, how his control has never been um, more power, never been greater, that he's very powerful, that he is indeed the master of the Senate. But if you look back at what he actually wanted to do from the very beginning, he wanted to clearly, I believe, dismiss the articles of impeachment without having a trial but he couldn't get the votes to do that. So they didn't do that. He then wanted to have a trial that lasted as quickly as possible. And then he wanted to have a trial without witnesses. And, you know, they didn't have any witnesses, but he wanted to have a trial where there wasn't even a vote that they would call witnesses. And in the end, they had votes to call witnesses. So it looks like at every turn, uh, 
Mitch McConnell's uh, envision, the, the way in which he envisioned the trial to play out did not actually happen that way. But he has always excelled at taking credit for the inevitable or taking credit for the status quo, however it turns out. And so people tend to say that he is, in fact, the master of the Senate, but it looks like he's not. But on the, the dismissal point, I'm not sure it's so cut and dry. I think I agree with you, Julia. What was abundantly clear to me was that the Senate had no interest, and this is on both sides, I think. The Senate had no interest in actually having a trial. And if you look at all of the impeachment trials before, and then you can see a break point, and we talked about this a little bit with the Clinton impeachment trial, and not just presidential trials, but all trials. The Senate trial this time looked very similar to the Clinton impeachment trial. And it what they both have in common is that they were organized under a special set of rules, not the impeachment rules, that were designed to not have a trial. Under a normal uh, impeachment proceeding, you have opening statements, and in those opening statements, you're technically not allowed to present evidence. The, there's points of order that you can raise. The, the precedents and the rules uh, prohibit that under the, the impeachment rules that the Senate has. And you're supposed to only outline the case, the argument that you hope to prove after the opening statements have been concluded, when you will then present evidence on both sides, not just the House, but also the respondent, or in this case, the president. And then you will call witnesses and present documents. And then at the end of that, you'll have final arguments, and then the Senate will then decide whether or not they want to convict or acquit. And in the Clinton impeachment trial, that did not happen. And in the, or to a limited extent, and in the um, the Senate the trial for Trump, that didn't happen. Instead of an adversarial process, you have a sequential process that is not designed to kind of fully weigh the accusations. And so in that sense, yes, they didn't uh, dismiss the charges because, or the articles, because they couldn't, they didn't have the votes, but they did have the votes, it seems to me, in fact, unanimously to not have a trial. And that's in fact what we saw. So is the process broken? Or, or has it ever worked? I'm not sure that the process is broken. It appears to me that the senators are the ones who ha- who refuse to actually let the process work. It's not like the senators want to have a trial and somehow the way in which the rules that they have to do that are broken and won't let them. The senators just don't want to have a trial. And that includes, you think, Democratic and Republican senators? I, I believe so, yes. I mean, one of the things you saw in, in the Clinton trial, there was a hundred to nothing vote to have these special rules to structure everything about it. It was almost identical to what happened um, during the Trump trial. Trial. And then at the end, they had a vote to, to call more witnesses or to depose more witnesses. And that vote was a party line vote. 54 Republicans voted for it. And then all of the Democrats voted against it. But behind the scenes, all the Democrats supported it. All the Democrats were ready to go because they saw it as a way for this to be over as quickly as possible. And in fact, they just voted against it because it's easier to vote against it for their perspective. You mean, you mean in, in this trial? No, in the, uh, in the Clinton trial. In this trial, you see, you know, Schumer starts off the whole thing with a series of votes, um, and it's all prearranged. It's all pre-cooked. There's a at the beginning of the trial, and then at the end of the trial, the Senate votes to say we're not going to have any witnesses, no witnesses. And then you know they vote, and then they recess for a little over an hour, and then they come back by unanimous consent and have votes on witnesses. I mean, it's it's just silly. So, uh, so I mean, I think this is interesting if we think about the incentives of what what I, I want to break this down because I. If we're thinking about whether impeachment as a remedy can work and, and we're putting the burden of acquittal on the Senate, I want to think about the motivations of the Democrats, the Republicans, and the president in this process. So let's start with the Democrats. D- did they actually want to convict Trump or did they just want to have him impeached 
and then use that as a way to beat him up in 2020. Well, my sense is that because the threshold is so high to impeach someone in the Senate, that no one honestly thought that that threshold would be obtained. And so what they were looking for is a way to engage in posturing and a way to engage in activity that allows them to look like they're doing something and it feels they feel safer about it. But if the key to me is that the Democrats and Schumer in particular negotiated with Republicans to structure the trial from beginning to end to make sure that there are no unforeseen events that happen, that there's nothing that could happen that hasn't been planned and agreed to in advance. And that when you do that, just like with legislation and how the Senate debates and considers big, important bills, when everything is controlled, the outcome is controlled. It's predicted in advance. And if you want to have a real trial where the president maybe could be impeached, maybe or convicted, maybe not, you have to have a trial where things are up in the air and you don't know who's going to call what witnesses and you don't know who's going to ask what questions and you don't know how it's all going to turn out in the end. But there was, from my perspective, it looked like there was no willingness on the Democratic side or the Republican side to have that kind of process play out. So is this the problem with the two-thirds threshold that if it was actually a simple majority, then the, the party bringing the impeachment would have thought a little bit more carefully about what it's what it was actually doing, whereas the the two thirds removal threshold makes it easier to bring a, per, a purely performative impeachment trial. I mean, I, and I'll let yeah, Julie you go ahead. That, that certainly does make sense to me. I think that I'm I'm not totally sure how this relates to Democrats, or if this answers the question of Democrats political incentives. But I do think that there's a kind of dual pressure weighing on Democrats in this situation, given that they they know that the removal threshold is incredibly high. I mean, they're not very likely to achieve it, even if they had controlled the Senate, although they might have had more agenda control. But the thing there is that part of the political posturing is trying to position it so that it looks like the Democrats are being constitutional and reasonable and the Republicans are being partisan and unreasonable and ignoring constitutional imperatives or a presidential abuses of power. So that's like one frame that Democrats might want to use that this situation kind of calls for. But the, the broader politics, particularly if we think about the way in which the electorate has sorted, right, the way in which Senate Democrats increasingly are, are not representing, many of them not representing purple states, and certainly, you know, purple House districts have decreased in number, that there's also this imperative of just kind of red red meat to your base or blue meat. I'm never sure what to do with that metaphor. And it just gets weirder and grosser the more I talk. Well, but tuna is know, supposed to be meat. as broad as possible, right? So what's that? If you have like a good, good tuna blue piece tuna? of tuna, yeah, blue you get like tuna. a you sure. know, very raw, yeah. almost rare. Right, right. Blueberries. Right. Or whatever yeah. it would be for, the, for a Democratic constituency. But my, I guess tuna. my point is that there's also a lot of there's a lot of anger and negativity about the the Trump presidency, and that I think was is difficult to package alongside a more measured constitutional case. Um, I do think the main actors in this situation seem to have been pretty successful at that, like Adam Schiff, of kind of merging those two things, as opposed to an approach that treats them as distinct kind of political appeals. I think that was one of the tensions weighing on congressional Democrats throughout the process. 
Uh, can I just jump in real quick and make an observation about uh, Schiff? And this is a very serious uh, and sincere observation. Um, he was a lightning rod throughout this process, but sitting there listening to the trial, listening to the arguments, I'm convinced that Schiff should be reading for Audible. He's got, you know, he he didn't just speak in the same loud voice the whole time. He had inflection. He raised his voice. He lowered his voice. He he had good tempo. I mean, he would be a fabulous audible book reader. That's just that's controversial. If you're, take. If, you're li- if you're listening, audible or or Adam Schiff, please very, very polarizing. Read some books. <laughs> read some books to us. I'm, I'm waiting for him to read Oliver Twist. So James, you were you were there in the Senate. So. What what was the mood on the floor? Talk us through how 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 it kind of played out from a from a ground level perspective. Well, the lead up to the trial just seemed a little surreal to me because you had a scenario where the Democrats weren't sending the articles over, and the Republicans in the Senate were demanding that they have a trial. So it's almost like they reversed the roles, and the Republicans were very impatient. But once the trial got underway. It, there was a lot of seriousness at first, but then that first night where it went to like one or two in the morning, I think there was a lot of frustration and a lot of exhaustion because they were essentially, as I said, presenting their arguments kind of ad seriatim, like one after another in sequential order during opening statements. And so you have to just sit there and listen to someone just lay out all of this evidence without any kind of adversarial process, without any kind of cross-examination, without any rebuttal. And it goes on for three days. And that was very tiring. And then the president's councils did the same thing on their end. Senators were at first told that they had to you know, sit in their chairs and if they got up, it would be bad and they'd be breaking a rule. But there's there's no rule that says they can't get up. You know, they just, they shouldn't be speaking and they need to be careful that when they do get up because the press is there and they can see them. So there was a lot of, they, they did approach it with a lot of seriousness, but I'm not sure that the process, again, allowed itself, allowed them to approach it with an open mind per se. It almost, it's almost like the process was organized to reinforce their preconceptions about how it was supposed to to unfold. There was a period of time where you had a number of Republicans who wanted witnesses, um, not just uh, more moderate members, but also more institutionally minded members like uh, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania. And then you also had a number of conservatives who wanted uh, witnesses as well and, and wanted to call a whole host of people. And it turns out that behind the scenes, there was a lot of pressure and a lot of effort on behalf of the leadership to get all senators to back down, to have no witnesses, to get this over as quickly as possible. And so that was that was another surprising thing. And it worked in the end. And then the last thing I would just say is some of the arguments that were made on all sides, but on particularly the president's counsel, were just, it seemed to me, absurd. And what was remarkable is the number of senators who challenged those, in particular, say, like a Dershowitz, you know, his arguments about the standard of impeachment. No one, it seemed, to challenge those arguments. No one, even privately, that I was aware of, were pushing back on those arguments. That somehow the idea that, and also that if we have an impeachment, if this goes forward and we don't dismiss this as quickly as possible, then all of a sudden impeachment's going to happen all of the time. And it was a very weird surreal environment. And no no Republican senator, to my knowledge, was saying to themselves, well, if the House just constantly impeaches someone then or government officials, then what are these officials doing that is causing them to be impeached all the time? I mean, even just common sense, logical questions and, and self-reflection, it was just not there in my mind. It was just a desire to kind of go through the motions and get this over with as quickly as possible. So I ask a political question that I think is that one of the nagging political questions of our time, which is why 
is it that Senate Republicans, particularly ones who have their own political bases in their states, they've been in Congress for a long time. Why have they doubled down around Trump so much? I mean, I do remember, I remember this argument when Clinton was being impeached in the late 90s. And of course, Clinton was term limited, so he wasn't going to be on the ticket in 2000 regardless. But I do remember this like little shadow argument idea that, well, if Gore had, you know, if, if he resigns then Gore can run as a as an incumbent and that'll be advantageous. And like, I don't think anybody really bought that. But it's interesting to me that that didn't seem to be part of the conversation this time around that Pence, who's a much more traditional conservative, could run. And I think we all sort of know that maybe what the 2020 election would look like that would be would be different. And, you know, Pence doesn't have rallies the way that Trump does or whatever. But it's surprising to me that there aren't any establishment Republicans that really were willing to put some more weight behind this. Why this effort to protect the president, particularly when, you know, polls show that impeachment's pretty, was pretty popular and a lot of people, not an insubstantial number of Republicans did think that the president did something wrong. I think there's two parts to this. One is with regard to the process itself. And I think it's unlikely the president gets impeached in any or gets convicted in any scenario. But I do know that if, if it were to happen or if more Republicans were to vote to convict, it would be because there is a more freewheeling process that reveals a lot more information, educates their constituents and their members. But the the members themselves, the senators had such little information about how the rules actually work, what their rights are, and the leadership uh, helped to create an environment where these are the things that have to happen and you have no power. And so I think that that reinforces this uh, this very closed and controlled process from beginning to end. And as far as impeaching the or convicting the president, I think that in today's day and age where the Senate does very little and they kick as much as possible and controversial stuff over to the White House, over to the judiciary, what happens is the presidency becomes about policy too. And if the presidency is very important for a policy perspective, the last thing you want to do, regardless of how you feel about the particular president, is to convict your president. Because what you're doing is you're removing and your ability to make a difference on policy. And I do think whether that's a, a subconscious type thing or even more conscious thing, I do think that matters and it encourages a little bit of restraint on their part, even if they don't like the president. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, then the question is, uh, and I think I want to pick up on, on Julia's point about this being an election year, is whether the process would have played out differently if Trump were in his second term uh, and not up for an election, and you know, I think I think at that point, my guess, and, and James, you 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 probably have better insight into that, is that if the senators were to vote who they'd rather have as president, I think most would probably prefer Pence over Trump in private. But I think there's also a sense that that Pence is not very charismatic and would not be a a very inspiring uh, top of the ticket candidate. Yeah, I mean, what's Pence is a, is a what I would call like a 2002, 2004 Republican. It's unclear that Pence could win. He couldn't. I don't think he could have gotten the votes that Trump got in places like Pennsylvania and you know and other blue wall states. But I don't think it would have been different. It still would have been very controlled. And what what was on trial in the Senate was not Trump. If you actually look at it, what was on trial in the Senate was the House process and. That's what the, the Trump's counsel, they constantly were, were, were attacking the House process, which fine. And then, but the senators themselves, uh, both on in 
doing press and media outside of the trial and also the questions they asked during the trial, the House process was on trial. And that is not the focus of an impeachment trial. The impeachment trial is about the allegations that the House has made and they present evidence to prove those allegations, and the respondent then presents evidence to disprove those allegations. And it's an adversarial process. And it's not about whether or not the House trial met a certain threshold or the House process met a threshold that therefore we can then decide to have a trial. But that's what was on trial this time around. And, and I don't think that changes regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of what term they're in. I think the way in which the Senate works today, I think this is something that we saw with Clinton, and it's and it's only gotten more and more pronounced in the years since. The way in which impeachment works today, I think, is is not compatible with the way in which impeachment was envisioned to work in the Constitution. Okay, so this is a really great moment to transition into these bigger questions uh, before we wrap up, which is that, you know, we're, we're thinking about, did this process work the way it was supposed to? I think we all are are in agreement that that's not the case. What what could what could be changed? What is the essence of what went wrong? You know, how do the politics of impeachment potentially undermine it? One thing I want to point out, because I think that James is absolutely right, that the problem here was in part that the Senate was able to try the the House process. So we have a situation in which the the chambers are controlled by different parties. This has been historically quite unusual, but it's happened twice in the last decade. So, you know, I wonder about this as a sort of population patterns shift if this is more common, this is going to be more common going forward, and that perhaps that possibility is something that would need to be taken into account if we were to change the impeachment process. So let's let's kick this off. Lee, I would put you on the spot because you're usually, you know, really uh, eager with reform ideas. What should be different about oh, yeah. the impeachment process? Well, I mean, I just want to, before we get there, I want to just, just recap something that I think this conversation has really clarified for me about the, the two-thirds threshold and the split chambers, uh, is this weird situation where Democrats were bringing this impeachment with pretty much full knowledge that it would be dismissed in the Senate. So it kind of made it in a way to, to allow them to do it without really thinking it was going to happen. And you know, Republicans hung together because they're not going to impeach their own president, uh, especially in a top-down process. So uh, we have this impeachment process where the the houses, if the houses of the opposite party, they are in fact motivated to bring this impeachment, uh, knowing it won't necessarily land as an acquittal, and and the you know, it's very hard to to pass to achieve uh, conviction in the Senate given the two thirds. So so the process is broken on two fronts. One, it's almost impossible to convict a sitting president unless that president's own party asks the president to resign, as happened with Nixon, uh, which is basically a, a no version of no confidence vote. And so it, it seems to me that like, if we want to take the idea of impeachment seriously, we, we need to think about a different process. Uh, so one idea that, that I've been kicking around is whether it would make sense to to kick it to a non-political body, and maybe there's no such thing, but some sort of independent, maybe, a, you know, a, a, say, 21 randomly chosen circuit court judges who would hear it in a much more traditionally legal environment. 
uh, and and then rule without worrying about their reelection prospects. If we're really concerned about the president breaking the law, I think we also might want to have a, a modern amendment that defines what high crimes and misdemeanors should actually entail, as opposed to doing this sort of attempt to reconstruct some some intellectual world of 230 years ago. Yeah, I think that's fair. Although I would say that if the House wants to impeach the president for putting his shoes on the wrong feet, then the House can do that. I mean, the House ultimately is the only is the only um, authority on what constitutes an impeachable offense. And then the Senate is the only authority that on what on constitutes, a, you know, a reason for them to convict or to acquit. But I, as I see it, I think the big problem is that impeachment is simply no longer a, a a serious tool by seen as by serious people. During the Obama administration, there was an effort to impeach the the, the, the president over immigration related issues, and you had a number of Republicans saying what he had done, what he did was unconstitutional, that he was acting like a tyrant. And then other senators bring up this idea of maybe we should impeach him, and it was like the end of the world. Like we can't do that; that would be terrible. Impeachment's not a serious thing. And if you look at House Republicans, they tried to impeach the IRS commissioner. And they were they were basically greeted with the same response by a large chunk of their party, including their party leadership, saying that is not a serious thing. We don't do that. I think uh, I think House Democrats initially tried to make that argument behind the scenes as well uh, regarding President Trump, and they were unsuccessful. But I think their kind of lackluster willingness to go forward with a more robust process and an impeachment inquiry to kind of bring in detractors to try to remove uh, objections to their process up front. I think that illustrates their unwillingness to do this. So as long as the participants don't see impeachment as a realistic tool, a meaningful tool, but instead as a dangerous tool, as if something that is authorized by the Constitution can undermine the Constitution. But as long as that happens, in my opinion, I don't think any set of reforms is going to make it more likely to be used more or to be used more meaningfully. I think it's just going to be continue to happen like we've seen it very rarely. And when they do do it, they will make sure that it, it unfolds as 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 controlled and predictable as possible. Yeah, so I keep going back to this article by Keith Whittington that that came out at the around the conclusion of the Clinton process, in which he he compares the Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton impeachments and makes a what I think is a really interesting observation that the Johnson impeachment was about constitutional issues and it was really about the limitations on presidential power. And what was really at issue there and what was at issue in the passage of the Tenure of Office Act and Johnson's subsequent violation of it by firing a cabinet secretary was really like, although that process is easy to trivialize, was really about the president using the executive branch to change the enforcement of Reconstruction laws in a a kind of, you know, substantive and and value-laden way. And so it was about that. It was, you know, it was about the kind of constitutional questions of the presidency, whereas the Clinton impeachment, he says, was really about high crimes and misdemeanors. I do remember this discourse very vividly of every pundit on earth trying to define this term. And he says, you know, this textual direction that's really about, did this person violate this stricture? And, you know, should this person be in office? That that's not a very productive conversation to have. And so even though neither impeachment ended in conviction, that they had very different implications. And he argues the Johnson process really did limit the subsequent 19th century presidency for the the latter decades of that century. You know, one of the big questions coming out of this is, does this give the president impunity? And, 
you know, I thought a lot about this also in, to bring up our other context case of, of Watergate, where the president did end up leaving office. It's not obvious to me that Watergate really hemmed in the presidency either. I know that there were efforts to do so and efforts to make government more transparent. But I think we can all agree that at this point, the presidency is very powerful. It's not very transparent. And government is in a legitimacy crisis. So I, I agree with James that that is, you know, there are substantive problems there that can't be fixed by changing the process. And the other trick there, I think, you know, one of the questions we started out, out with at the outset is should the constitution, constitutional language be clarified to clarify what high crimes and misdemeanors means or the conditions under which a leader can be impeached? And that could that could happen. But the executive branch has always functioned in a way where there's always a little bit of leeway and discretion around defending the national interest. And that has been merged with day-to-day -day partisanship and day-to-day -day policymaking. And in that context, it's very difficult to, to dis disentangle those with, with, with Congress not stepping up uh, in a lot of ways with, with regard to daily policymaking. So that to me is like this uh, impeachment is of a piece of Congress abdicating its its congressional obligations and allowing the presidency to expand. And we have, you know, a, to speak to my question earlier about why have Senate Republicans become so loyal is because we have very presidency centric parties. So this is not really an answer about, you know, how impeachment could be improved. It's more like we need to have a, a conversation about about presidential power. And that's as much at the root of the impeachment problem as is the problem of holding an individual in the office accountable. And in some ways, like elections do an OK job of that. But also each individual in the presidency steps into that expanse and that lack of accountability. Yeah, I, so, I think I think that's an important point, because I mean, one thing to note about the 70s was that Congress was a lot institutionally stronger then. And so the Republican Party was was less dependent on the presidency, although I guess in some ways it was more dependent on the presidency because the Democrats controlled Congress. But Republicans had the ability to, to work with Democrats in Congress because Congress was much less centralized and top down to James's point, which you know may have meant something also that the process was just and, and leadership structures were just very different in the 70s. And that you probably if you if you had had a Senate trial, it would have been much more freewheeling. Uh, than it is today uh, in all likelihood. So yeah, I mean, I think with uh, as with a lot of questions, if only we had a stronger and more pluralistic Congress, I think our government would function a lot better. But I want to, something that you've mentioned, Lee, about perhaps even reducing the threshold from two thirds to a simple majority, I, I tend to think that the process would still play out very similar to how it's played out now precisely because senators don't appear very willing to, to engage in this kind of more freewheeling process. But it would, at the margins, I think, make it more likely that you would have efforts to, to impeach. And maybe that's all you need is to try to impeach more, and then maybe eventually impeachment will be seen as a realistic tool. But right now, there is this very, and Julia, that's a great point about Whittington's fabulous piece, and this idea about there has to be you know a crime that was committed, because it it removes the agency from the senators and it says, well, now they have to convict because there's a piece of paper somewhere that's written down on it what happens when you actually convict someone. 
When in reality, that's not the way the impeachment was envisioned. James Madison, who I think had a fairly good idea of what he and his colleagues thought the Constitution should mean, he believed firmly that the president had the authority to remove officials from government. They didn't need the Senate or the Congress's um, concurrence to do so. And when he was in the first Congress and he, all, and he submits bills to create the Treasury, the Secretary of St- uh, the Department of State and the Department of War, now the Department of Defense, he puts into those bills a statutory language that affirms his, his reading of the Constitution and says that the president can remove these, these officials. And in the debate that follows, people say, well, what happens if he comes in and removes all these great officials? And Madison says you can impeach them. If you don't like it, James Madison, the father of the Constitution, says if the president exercises his lawful constitutional power that we are affirming in statute, impeach him if you don't like the way he uses that power. So it's like a no confidence vote. Right. And I think that gets to the, the because it puts the onus on the members of Congress. It says you have agency to take action to do what you think is right, not to simply rubber stamp something that's been decided elsewhere and written down into this standard is when the president ought to be impeached. And that puts a lot of onus on them. It makes them accountable to their constituents when they act. And if they don't act the way their constituents want them to act, then they're going to be in trouble. And so I think it encourages them to see themselves more as individuals, to see themselves more as the kind of people who will stand up and and reassert Congress's power vis-a-vis the presidency on whatever policy. Look, I don't know what the policy outcomes are meant to be, but from an institutional standpoint, I think that's the trick. We need that we need members who have agency because with agency, they then have self-respect, they then can be held accountable, and they are then impelled to act. And then ambition can counteract ambition. So this is a really great point to kind of transition into our final thoughts on impeachment. So we got a couple, we've got a couple questions here. One is like, is that, you know, can President Trump act with impunity? One that I thought of, James, as you were talking about the idea that Congress could impeach the president really if, you know, they didn't like how he exercised his constitutional power is this question of, you know, will we see, are we in a politics now of perpetual impeachment? So let's, let's merge those questions somehow and and each weigh in briefly before we wrap up. Yeah, I don't I don't think we're in a perpetual impeachment environment because the parties don't think impeachment is a legitimate thing. And it was a very surreal moment. Again, as I mentioned earlier, during this trial, you had senators saying, well, this is a dangerous precedent and they're going to have perpetual impeachments after this. And my thought was, number one, what are these government officials doing that is causing Congress to per- impeach them in perpetuity? And why aren't the American people concerned about it in voting these members of Congress out? That seemed to be not even on the radar. It was like, well, whatever they're doing, it doesn't matter. Impeachment is a problem. And that is very concerning to me. Well, and I I think we are focused a lot on on what happens inside Congress, but the pressure for impeachment really came from outside of Congress. And I think Nancy Pelosi was trying to hold that off as long as she could. But, you know, this is a this is this is an issue when you have politics in which both sides have a base that is really riled up and sees the other side as 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 totally illegitimate. And it, it puts tremendous pressure on Democrats or maybe in the future Republicans to impeach the president. And, you know, I mean, I know there were a lot of members in Congress who got on board supporting impeachment because 
they were afraid of a primary challenger. And they were hearing a lot from, from groups saying, it's time to impeach Trump. It's time to impeach Trump. It's time to impeach Trump. And at a certain point, you know, if you're hearing that message over and over again and, and you're worried about a primary challenger, you're going to say, all right, well, let's do it. Uh, and I, I think th- that's one reason why I think you might see perpetual impeachment, because as soon as, as soon as there's a Democrat in the White House, a lot of House Republicans are going to be hearing impeachment over and over again and you know and and they will will be hearing it from from conservative media in the same way that liberal media was was fomenting it uh and i think especially given given the sort of way in which they can't actually succeed but they can do it in a performative way there's really not a lot of cost to going through the motions especially if we're in a moment in which politics is completely otherwise gridlocked so it's not like anything is getting done anyway and and that that's worrying to me this is i i see what you're saying i think there's a couple of tensions here that make it less clear to me exactly what's going to happen. What is the old tension between in what ways is the president going to be too powerful and in what ways is the president going to be too dependent on Congress? I mean, that's ultimately the impeachment question is like, is this going to become a parliamentary system? And that you heard that a little bit this time. You heard it a lot under Clinton. You certainly heard it when there was like rattling about impeachment for George W. Bush and for Obama was you know, what, to what extent then will Congress be running the show and the president be simply, you know, dependent on Congress? And obviously, I think that's not really an issue. Although I do think what's illustrated is that they're increasingly drawing their support from a kind of nationally unified electorate, right? So the ways in which the electorate is sliced up by the Constitution, creating that, you know, the Senate, the House, the president is like irrelevant. So, you know, that's that's one conundrum. Which side is going to be too powerful? And honestly, I think, you know, this might as well not have happened given like, in the in the confines of that question. The presidency is still very powerful. And Congress, as you know, as James and I have both emphasized, is still kind of doesn't take itself seriously. And as as Lee has pointed out, is mired in the two-party conflict. But the other thing is that then that logic like kind of contradicts itself in the sense that, first of all, if we're in a perpetual politics of, of impeachment, then there's nothing stopping Congress from impeaching Trump again. So he would theoretically still be worried by that. But this idea that, that now it's now there's impunity, right? Now Trump knows that he can do whatever he wants and Senate Republicans will stick with him. Like I also don't see that as substantially different. And I think that there it makes sense to separate the three types of things that presidents do and that President Trump has done. And one is lead the legislative agenda. Our friend of the pod, Matt Glassman, has written really persuasively about this, that actually congressional Republicans are not letting Trump lead the agenda and they've kept the things that they think would be disadvantageous to them off the agenda. The second thing is make unilateral decisions. And that's an area where you know, Trump has really been quite successful in pursuing both a traditional Republican agenda of deregulation and his own agenda around immigration. And if before he really felt hemmed in by the possibility of impeachment, I don't think and that was just was not obvious to me. And then the third area is in rhetorical leadership, which, which once again, I think is not an area where Trump was feeling restrained by the possibility of impeachment or by the possibility that members of his own party would turn on him because of his use of language, because of his 
his rhetoric about immigration, you know, the things that have tended to to draw strong concern from, you know, members of the Republican establishment, including those in Congress, they'll continue to raise their eyebrows, but they really never pushed back in any meaningful way. So I don't know that I see this as having made a huge difference. It's just like one more instance of showing that our impeachment process really is, you know, is is inscrutable and doesn't really make clear sense. Yeah, I, I, so I think that's right. That's sort of where I where I see things. Yeah, well, what a depressing note to, to conclude on, but I think you're right. Well, we'll have to come back on when they impeach Trump again, and we'll have to re-examine um, all of our yeah. all of our And hopefully thoughts. we'll come back with an episode where we, we end on a somewhat less uh, resigned kind of note. But anyway, hilarious Nixon puns. Um, this is Politics in Question. Thank you much, so much for joining us. And thank you to everyone at, at New America and R Street for their support of this podcast. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.